We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Welcome to Womance's public access read-along of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I am your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. I read the odd chapters. Odd chapters for odd ducks. (laughs) This (laughs) This week is an even chapter. Chapter 30, in fact. So, Morgan, would you catch the listeners up on what happened in chapter 29? Lizzie is visiting her friend Charlotte and her cousin who it didn't work out with, Mr. Collins, (laughs) and they go to dinner at the house of Lady Catherine de Bourgh uh, on this trip, and Lady Catherine de Bourgh kind of gets a sense that she doesn't really like Lizzie very much. Yeah, she's an opinionated young woman who gives her opinions quite freely. Yes. That's right. What is what is the exact... Upon my word, you give your opinion very decidedly for so young a person. There it is. Yeah. There you go. There it is. Uh, Morgan and I are recording this juicy chapter on Jane Austen's B-Day. Happy birthday, Jane. Happy birthday, Jane. 200 and some years young. Wonderful. Nobody does it better. I was thinking the other day about her legacy, actually, and because I I can't remember what it was, but it was like some character in some movie was saying his favorite author was Jane Austen. I wonder how she would feel if she could see how truly ubiquitous her work is. I hope it would fill her with joy. I hope so, too. I think she I think it would be utterly overwhelming. I think she would be overwhelmed by the stands and the fan fiction (laughs) but I also think that she'd like a lot of it like the one that had Carrie Russell in it Austin Land yeah I think she would think that was really good I worry that she would be like J.K. Rowling and just because I'm trying to think of someone who like lived through their own celebrity that was at this level you know but it's also like this is such a slim little text and like think of all of the other texts that have come because of it 
like that wouldn't exist if it hadn't existed. It's like that movie where the guys, the there's like five people who remember the Beatles existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yesterday. Yeah. Like, what would the world be like if uh, Jane Austen? I think it would genuinely be a, a different world. A noticeably different one. And, like, one of the things that I loved most about that movie yesterday is that in that universe where there are no Beatles songs except for the five people who remembered it before the universe shifted. Yeah. And only one of them knew how to play an instrument. And only one of them knew how to play an instrument. John Lennon gets to live. And he's, like, in a cottage just living a life. And I think that if there hadn't been... Jane Austen's book, I'd like to think that that meant that she got to live past 41 mm. and, like, have the romance that she so richly deserved and clearly desired. Yeah. That's an interesting example because that idea is, like, if John Lennon didn't have to be famous, he would have survived mm-hmm. to, I guess, beat his wife in a lighthouse instead of in Malibu. Um <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe he would have gotten over that too. Gotten over beating his wife? Yeah. You know, like learned to like fucking figure his shit out. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's what that's what blue collar men did back in the 60s, right? <laughs> they got over it. You say it like that sounds very dismissive. <laughs> I meant grow change figure themselves out stop beating their wives and their kids no i am being dismissive i don't think he would have stopped beating his wife that's fair in the movie he didn't beat his wife in that version yeah in that version right which is also the version we all accept publicly we don't problematize uh which is a disservice to everyone who suffered including the other beatles especially george yeah, we've made a we've made a god out of him because mm-hmm. he got to die. And he wrote some killer songs. I mean, he was Paul McCartney did too and so did George. Yeah, I mean, I don't like I think he was deified before he was murdered and then the murder made him a martyr. Yeah. And just for the record, Jane Austen never beat her wife that we know of. She didn't publicly say the N-word, which is another fun thing. Mm-mm. John Lennon indulged in um, <laughs> child neglect. <laughs> she she never even had children. So maybe we're giving her too much credit. She never had a Maybe if she had had a wife and a child. By all of contemporary NSC accounts, she was a very good aunt. Yeah, she was a very good person. I didn't say good person. I said good aunt. Was she a bad person? The historical record is actually quite sparse on Jane Austen's personhood, but there's stuff in her text that Jane Austen stan slash historians, like, I think this is a, like, fan historians, like to indicate that Jane Austen was against slavery because she mentions the fact that there's a sugar boycott. Oh, right. And I'm like, I don't think that that makes her... (sighs) An abolitionist, and there's nothing in the contemporaneous record of Jane Austen saying that she's an abolitionist or believes in the rights of black humans. So, I don't know. I feel like she gets credit that she doesn't deserve, but there also isn't anything in the record saying she didn't. So. And I'll tell you one thing. She Mm. was no John Lennon. She was no John Lennon. (laughs) 
Didn't beat her wife for kids. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note. And so a very happy birthday. Happy birthday, not John Lennon. <laughs> Chapter 30. Sir William stayed only a week at Hunsford, but his visit was long enough to convince him of his daughter's being the most comfortably settled and of her possessing such a husband and such a neighbor as were not often met with. While Sir William was with them, Mr. Collins devoted his mornings to driving him out in his gig and showing him the country, but when he went away, the whole family returned to their usual employments, and Elizabeth was thankful to find that they did not see more of her cousin by the alteration, for the chief of the time between breakfast and dinner was now passed by him either at work, in the garden, or in reading and writing, and looking out looking out of window in his own book room, which fronted the road. The room in which the ladies sat was backwards. Elizabeth at first had rather wondered that Charlotte should not prefer the dining parlor for common use. It was a better-sized room and had a pleasanter aspect. But she soon saw that her friend had an excellent reason for what she did, for Mr. Collins would undoubtedly have been much less in his own apartment had they sat in one equally lively, and she gave Charlotte credit for the arrangement." From the drawing room, they could distinguish nothing in the lane, and were indebted to Mr. Collins for the knowledge of what carriages went along, and how often, especially Miss de Bourgh, drove by in her phaeton, which he never failed <laughs> coming to inform them of, though it happened almost every day. She not unfrequently stopped at the parsonage, and had a few minutes' conversation with Charlotte, but was scarcely ever prevailed on to get out. Very few days. <laughs> I love the idea. I'm like picturing the modern equivalent, which is just like lowering your car window, <laughs> waiting for the person to come out to talk to you. Very few days passed in which Mr. Collins did not walk to Rosings, and not many in which his wife did not think it necessary to go likewise, until Elizabeth recollected that there might be other families family livings to be disposed of, she could not understand the sacrifice of so many hours. Now and then they were honored with a call from her ladyship, and nothing escaped her observation that was passing in the room during these visits. She ex examined into their employments, looked at their work, and advised them to do it differently, found fault with the arrangement of the furniture, or detected the housemaid in negligence. <laughs> and if she accepted any refreshment, seemed to do it only for the sake of finding out that Mrs. Collins's joints of meat were too large for her family. Elizabeth soon perceived that though this great lady was not in the commission of the peace for the county, she was a most active magistrate in her own parish. The minutest concern of which were carried to her by Mr. Collins, and whenever any of the cottagers were disposed to be quarrelsome, discontented, or too poor, she sallied forth into the village to settle their differences, silence their complaints, and scold them into harmony and plenty. Ooh, that's a good line. Ooh. The entertainment of dining at Rosings was repeated about twice a week, and allowing for the loss of Sir William, and there being only one card table in the evening, every such entertainment was the counterpart of the first. Their other engagements were few, as the style of the, uh, the, style of living of the neighborhood in general was beyond the Collins's reach. Oof. This, however, was no evil to Elizabeth, and upon the whole, she spent her time comfortably enough. There were half hours of pleasant conversation with Charlotte, and the weather was so fine for the time of year 
but she had often great enjoyment out of doors. Her favorite walk, and where she frequently went while the others were calling on Lady Catherine, was along the open grove which edged the side of the park, where there was a nice sheltered path with no one which no one seemed to value but herself, and where she felt beyond the reach of Lady Catherine's curiosity. In this quiet way, the first fortnight of her visit soon passed away. Easter was approaching, and the week preceding it was to bring an addition to the family at Rosings, which in so small a circle must be important. Elizabeth had heard soon after her arrival that Mr. Darcy was expected there in the course of a few weeks, and though there were not... And though there were not many of her acquaintance whom she did not prefer, his coming would furnish one comparatively new to look at in their Rosings parties, and she might be amused in seeing how hopeless Miss Bingley's designs on him were by his behavior to his cousin, for whom he was evidently destined by Lady Catherine, who talked of his coming with the greatest satisfaction, spoke of him in terms of the highest admiration, and seemed almost angry to find that he had already been frequently seen by Miss Lucas and herself. His arrival was soon known at the parsonage, for Mr. Collins was walking the whole morning within view of the lodges opening into Hunsford Lane in order to have the earliest assurance of it. And after making his bow as the carriage turned into the park, (laughs) Morgan, he bowed at the carriage. His little hat. His little hat just like nodding at a carriage. Not even Mr. Percy. So funny. He bowed. Hurried home with the with the great intelligence. On the following morning, he hastened to Rosings to pay his respects. There were two nephews of Lady Catherine to requ- to require them, for Mister Darcy had brought with him a Colonel Fitzwilliam, the younger son of his uncle, Lord Blank. And to the great surprise of all the party, when Mister Collins returned, the gentleman accompanied him. Charlotte had seen them from her husband's room crossing the road and immediately running in together told the girls what an honor they might expect, adding, I may thank you, Eliza, for this piece of civility. Mr. Darcy would never have come so soon to wait upon me. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> so other people see it. Marked. Mm-hmm. Mm. Elizabeth had scarcely time to disclaim all right to the compliment before their approach was announced by the doorbell, and shortly afterwards the three gentlemen entered the room. Colonel Fitzwilliam, who led the way, was about thirty, not handsome, but in person and address most truly the gentleman. Mr. Darcy looked just as he had been, used to look in Hertfordshire, paid his compliments with his usual reserve to Mrs. Collins, and whatever might be his feelings towards her friend, met her with every appearance of composure. (laughs) Elizabeth merely curtsied to him without saying a word. (laughs) I was giddy as a goose. Right? It feels so good. (laughs) Like, I've been waiting for you so long. No, I'm just like floating on bubbles. Colonel Fitzwilliam entered into conversation directly with the readiness and ease of a well-bred man, and talked very pleasantly, but his cousin, after having addressed a slight observation on the house and garden to Mrs. Collins, sat for some time without speaking to anybody. At length, however, his civility was so far awakened as to inquire of Elizabeth after the health of her family. She answered him in the usual way, and after a moment's pause, added, "'My eldest sister has been in town these three months.' Have you never happened to see her there? 
She was perfectly sensible that he never had, but she wished to see whether he would portray any consciousness of what had passed between the Bingleys and Jane, and she thought he looked a little confused as he answered that he had never been so fortunate as to meet Miss Bennet. The subject was pursued no further, and the gentleman soon afterwards went away. So first, I would like to say that one thing that I find both charming and infuriating about Jane Austen is that, like, town Uh literally just refers to London as if there are no other towns in the whole of the nation state of Great Britain. (laughs) It's like, oh, have you been to town? I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, it's it's certainly an imperialist worldview. Yeah, exactly. It's like, there is no town but the metropole. I think it's so interesting. I don't particularly, I was thinking about this, I don't particularly like like Mr. Darcy. I don't think about him. He's not like one of my like archetypes that I've, I'm a Rochester gal, all right? I'm a Rocky. I like that cringe little weirdo. You like the guy who's gonna talk about ripping open your ribs to find the essence of you and then once having <laughs> ripped open. Dress as a fortune teller and make me kneel. For some reason. Sleep outside your room to prevent you from leaving. Insist on, like, you, on, like, showing you my drawings. Like, yeah. (laughs) I I prefer him. I think he's, like, way more interesting. Whenever he showed up, I was like, what's this guy gonna do? And I feel equally excited when Darcy shows up, but I have absolutely zero interest (laughs) Like, I know he's just gonna, like, nod and, like, well, be curt and, like, every once in a while be witty. But, like, he's not, he's not that little powder keg. And it's like, I, you know, I think I go on and on about this, but that just really speaks to how good of a writer Jane Austen is. That she can capture, she can, she can put you in thrall Mm -hmm. to a feeling without you even realizing that it's happening, right? There's, like, no big bells and whistles. Well, I mean... He's been talked about in every single chapter, even though he's been absent for half of what we've read now. Yeah. Which is insane. Like one of the one of the founding guiding principles of this whole experiment is like, is romance founded on the Rochester or the Darcy? And the Darcy's yeah. a projector screen. And it's like nowhere is that more true than in Elizabeth's mind, right? Like she is just mm. projecting all sorts of things onto Darcy based on very little interactions that she's had with him. And, like, he occupies so much of her mental space rent-free. Like, she even makes weird asides to an absent Wickham about, like, (laughs) how this, like, way-faced, very rich daughter will do for him because she's pinched and quiet. Yeah. The fact that she's, like, making mean asides to a person who isn't there about (laughs) a guy who is also isn't there is, like, bonkers. But it also keeps Darcy, like, fresh and alive for us the whole time. Keeps that tension, holds that tension, and manages to build it. Like, his absence, you're like, you know. Yeah, when's he going to come back? It's way more, yeah, when's he going to come back and what's going to happen? It's wild. I think, like... I think there are books that try to do this, right? Try to create it, intentionally try to create a Mm -hmm. Darcy. But the characters they create are so fucking present. And like we're immediately told how to feel about them. Mm -hmm. And I think this 
way more nuanced approach. Like, we're not just told how to feel about them. We're, like, put in their brain in a tight third. And so it, it's hard to imagine how – like, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of an example of a Darcy that's as well technically executed as this Darcy – but I can think of lots of main characters who are executed as well in the same way as Rochester was executed. Interesting. I think the closest for me that we've seen in a modern romance mm. is the Darcy in Aisha at last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he's very well technically executed, but the parts where it stumbles are the parts in his perspective. Right. That's where it kind of gets blown because we find out, like, he's frustrated by his mother. He's actually owning up to his own attraction to Aisha. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, in all of the ways that this builds all of that tension and that we only get Darcy's, and, like, spoiler alert, we get Darcy's confession from Elizabeth's perspective, like, we are never truly given Darcy's perspective, is part of and parcel of this like fizzy feeling mm. and it is so well executed but like modern romances even in the cuddly third really want to give mental space to the darcy and i think like there's something important about elizabeth's discovery that is like less important about the reader's discovery yeah i think it like i think modern romance really wants to reassure the reader even though we have this inevitability Mm -hmm. really wants to reassure the reader that the character is that the Darcy is falling in love with is loved Mm -hmm. but also like I think maybe worthy Mm -hmm. of love which seems like one of the more boring things like I think you and I both agree that some of the best romances come from very undiscerned like Characters who, or books that aren't preoccupied with the likability of their main characters and just kind of let them unfurl. Yeah, case in point, both uh, Bronte and Austin don't care if you get where Darcy or Rochester are coming from. Right. Like, they're happy to let you stew in it. Yeah. You have to, in, in Bronte, right, in Jane Eyre, we have to hear Jane trying to rationalize it. But we have mm-hmm. to realize how futile that is as well. And that there's something bigger at work. Um, which I think is God. I think that book's way more religious than I've ever given it credit for before. It's extremely religious and it's very specific in its religion. Like there are bad kinds of Christianity. Yeah. Catholics for We have one. like this whole like psychosexual <laughs> aside. <laughs> Sinjin. Like prove that out. But I think... People, you know, will often be like, I read romance novels. I've read Austen. And this is one of those places where it's just, it's not the same. Like this ambiguity. I heard someone say like, I wonder what it was like to read this book when it first came out. And like, you had no idea Darcy and Elizabeth were going to end up together. I think that does discredit readers of the era and their ability to kind of follow. Sus. (laughs) But... I I do wonder, you know, like this book does is way more comfortable with your ambiguity. And like we've just discovered through reading out loud together as adults, this kind of ambiguity about Lizzie's character that the book has. Like it's not afraid to make her an asshole. Yeah. Which I've been rewatching the miniseries um, 
And the miniseries isn't comfortable with you having that ambiguity even. Like that's been kind of shared away. So it's it's interesting how it's a little disappointing, I guess, how one of the what I now feel to be is like one of the most key aspects of this text gets left behind for all of this fizzy bubbly feeling that I myself am overwhelmed by in this moment. But that can't exist without the ambiguity, I guess. I don't think. I think what you're tapping into and like something that I want to be on guard for in future is that put it on the pin board. I want to put it on the pin board. I want to put it in the thought parking lot is like, (laughs) Lizzie and Darcy have taken on so much in our culture, right? Like, I have earnestly heard friends of mine describe having their Lizzie Bennett moment, right? Where they, like, stand up to someone in a particularly witty way, or they don't back down from someone who's trying to give them a dressing down, either if they're an authority over them or, like, they don't recognize their authority. Like, Lizzie has a particular kind of backbone that comes from a self-assurance that society in the text doesn't feel like she should have or deserves. And so, like, she became, in many ways, like a proto-feminist icon and has really become a feminist icon over the course of the last 60 years. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's deserved is something I want to think on. Yeah. And whether or not it is deserved is part and parcel of this then erasure of the aspects of Lizzie that are unpleasant. Yeah. Because, like, you can't become that kind of demigod heroine. Like, people are willing to forgive you a lot and maybe even forget a lot of what Lizzie does. Like, even in this chapter, she's like, well, why would Charlotte take the shitty room in the back? Oh, because it's so far away from Mr. Collins. That's so smart. But also, like, Charlotte walks with Mr. Collins to Rosings and they spend hours together doing that. So, like, Lizzie's perspective on Charlotte and Mr. Collins' marriage is so colored and so cruel that, like, it won't admit any other kinds of evidence and like those parts of Lizzie I don't hear as often never well and it's you know with the recent passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg people were like you know she wasn't perfect but we really wanted to make a demigod out of her not unlike John Lennon a a lot like (laughs) very dissimilar in a lot of important ways. I was like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't beat Arnie or her kids. She did stay way too fucking long and should have, you know, left quietly and nicely and with, like, great regalia when Obama asked her very politely in 2014. You know, I see, like, we even make, like, we it, it, at the time I was like, I can't believe we're making a character out of, out of an actual human being, but we make oversimplified characters out of characters. Like, we love to simplify and I and to streamline, as it were. But I also think, also in that vein, I can see a lot of societally problematic behaviors that come from oversimplifying Lizzie Bennet. Because I think of, like, Emma, who takes a dressing down and then grows from it, Perhaps a more valuable lesson for those of us who hold quite a bit of power societally as white women. Everyone hates her. Like, no one wants to be an Emma. (laughs) 
like people agree that it's a better book. Well, a lot of people think it's a better book, but you know, no one, no one makes her. No one's made an icon of Emma, right? They cast Gwyneth Paltrow as her. Although Jeremy Northam is like an ideal Mister Knightley. I think Emma's more complicated, and like in, in, but like Lizzie's not uncomplicated. It's just like Emma's. Perhaps because her text is more verbose, you can't really shake mm-hmm. off that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And well, you you're not intended to. Like Jane Austen wrote in her diaries that she made the most unlikable character in the English language in Emma. Yeah, she like, like she did that her. intentionally. She's kind of held to her shittiness. Um, and this book almost seems charmed by Lizzie. I don't know. I feel like we should do like a whole scope because now I'm thinking about Anne in Persuasion. And like, what does she, what does she, what, she's a whole other facet. (laughs) She is, because she's much older. I think one of the things that's important when we think about like Emma and Lizzie is that they're much more contemporaneous. Like Lizzie's 21, Emma's 19. Emma's an only child. Lizzie's second of five. Yeah. Emma is an heiress. Lizzie is not. Right. Right. Like there's also like a layer of class here that like lionizes Lizzie's candor Mm. in a way that it was like grotesque when Emma would do that stinging set down because of the power dynamics where it's cool when Lizzie stands up to Mrs. to Catherine de Bourgh. It's not cool when Emma dresses down. um, What's her face? Spoiler alert. Yeah. 200 year old. (laughs) But for a 200 year old text to play with class that way and the ways that like the strictures on women like function and like function differently. Emma explicitly takes into account class. I think you're right to say Pride and Prejudice just kind of lionizes Lizzie because of her punching up. But is she always punching up? No, she's not. Pun- and like, that's what was so interesting to me about this chapter. I have literally never clocked the fact that Charlotte and Mr. Collins can't socialize in the neighborhood because they don't have the same means. Like, Boom. the only people that they can truly socialize with is at the invitation and largesse of Catherine yeah. de Bourgh. And that fucking sucks because that means that does blow. Their life is so prescribed and so much smaller than Lizzie's in Meriton. And the other thing is, is like Charlotte's not that pretty, and Mr. Collins fucking sucks. So like, how is Charlotte gonna get invited anywhere? She's not because nobody wants to invite that fucking rector. He's fucking awful. It's yeah, it's it's a real bummer. Anyways, but it's also a happy birthday. <laughs> Jane Austen, doing the most with the least amount of words. It's so true. All right. Well, anything else? No, this is good. This is a great discussion. Thank you, Morgan. You're welcome, Isabel. I would just advise all of our listeners to loosen their prejudices. And maybe your prides. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. 
You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.